This is an amazing passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. It could be summarized by three words. They never stopped. They never stopped. Verse 42 is the key verse, the very last verse of the passage. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they, that is the apostles, the early church, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They never stopped. Prison didn't stop them. Official oppression didn't stop them. Threats of death didn't stop them. Pain didn't stop them. Nothing stopped them. We're going to see in our passage today that they're warned for a second time by the authorities not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. It didn't stop them. They could not be stopped. The church was experiencing explosive growth. And the reason is, as we studied last week, God purified the church in the incident with Ananias and Sapphira and how they lied to the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. And God's judgment upon them was immediate death. That had a purifying effect upon the church. And out of that purifying effect came explosive growth. And so it drew the attention of the authorities who wanted to get a handle on this new group and make sure that they didn't get too big. And despite all that they did to stop the apostles, all that they did to stop the gospel from going forward, the early church, the apostles, never stopped preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ. So the question for us this morning in this passage is, what stops us from sharing our faith? What stops us from sharing our faith? We're not persecuted. We won't be flogged if we share our faith. We're not thrown into prison. Not At this point, we're not. May come to that one day. Persecution may come one day. Pain may come one day. But at this point, we don't face those things. We don't face the things the apostles faced. We don't face the things the apostles overcame and conquered. And they never stopped. What stops you? What stops me? from sharing our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, verses 12 to 16 sets the stage for the persecution that would follow upon the early church and follow upon the apostles. We read in verse 12 that the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. You'll rem- in fact, we'll see an example of that in just a couple of verses. You'll remember from our study a couple of weeks ago that the Bible tells us that the things that mark an apostle are signs and wonders. Paul said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. The things that mark an apostle 
signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. That was a feature of the beginning of the church, a feature of the early church, a feature we don't see today as we studied a couple of weeks ago. What was the reason for these miraculous signs? What was the reason for these wonders? And we've already studied this. I'll just name them. There are three. Number one, it accredited the message. It accredited the message of the apostles. Number two, it accredited the messengers. And why did it accredit the message? And why did it accredit the messengers? Because number three, it identified the apostles with Jesus' ministry. It identified the apostles with Jesus' ministry. And so therefore, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. They had grown so big that they were meeting in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. Why? Well, one writer said dealing with sin in the church often results in new power for the church. Another said this, a healthy church is a church where reverent fear and purity of life exist. We ought never to forget what the Scripture teaches us and the scriptural writers teach us is that judgment begins where? At the house of God. Judgment begins in the church. We find ourselves so often standing and pointing our fingers at those outside the church and judging them when God says, turn your finger inward. Look at yourselves. Because judgment begins in the house of God. Judgment begins in the church. And when that happens, purity results. Power results. That's what happened here. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. What happened is, when it talks about no one else dared join them, literally the no one else phrase is none of the rest. None of the rest or the rest did not join them. It's talking about unbelievers there. It's talking about unbelievers. Unbelievers, when they saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, when they saw that they were immediately judged by God and gave their lives because of their lie to the church, to the Holy Spirit, to God, that had an effect upon unbelievers. And so no one else dared join them. The words, no one else, the rest, are used in numerous places in the Scripture where it talks about the lost or unbelievers. Unbelievers would not associate with the church. Unbelievers would not associate with the church. That's the idea of verse 13. No one else dared join them. The word join is kolao in Greek, and it means to closely associate with. None of the unbelievers wanted anything to do with the church. Now that's not a bad thing. Trouble with many churches is they're made up by many unbelievers. Sometimes the unbelievers are in leadership. 
Some people who are unbelievers attach themselves to a church for other reasons. Social. Business contacts. Lots of reasons, but that wasn't happening in Jerusalem. That was not happening in Jerusalem. The unbelievers were steering clear of the church. Well, verse 14, Nevertheless, even though many unbelievers would not have anything to do with the church, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to the numbers. That is, believers were growing rapidly. Believers, many were turning to the church and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Many did believe, in spite of the unbelievers who stayed away, many did believe and many joined. Many did believe and many joined. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 15 and 16, we see another example of the signs and wonders. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds. It even got to the point where it was uh, superstition, uh, People brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. So there was a lot going on. Unbelievers were keeping their distance, yet many were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And there was a great ministry going on well that brought the attention that brought the attention of the religious leaders that brought the attention of the religious leaders in verse 17 then the high priests and all his associates who were members of the party of the sadducees were filled with jealousy. They were filled with jealousy. Remember who the Sadducees were. They are the ones who did not believe in the supernatural. They are the ones who did not believe in angels. They are the ones who did not believe in resurrection from the dead. What on earth did those people believe? You could ask yourself. Not much. Very humanistic. But they were in charge, you see. They were the ruling class in Israel. They were the aristocrats. They were wealthy and influential. They were in power, and they cozied up with Herod and cozied up with Rome. And they're in charge. Now, the last thing, somebody who's a compromiser with the world, the last thing they want is for attention like the early church to be upon them. And so the Sadducees, the high priest, all his associates, members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Number one, they were losing prospects. Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So the Sadducees, who are in charge, arrest the apostles. This time they arrest all twelve. Earlier, Peter and John were arrested, but this time all twelve apostles are rounded up and arrested. 
Now, sometimes we ask, well, we can't really identify with the apostles who were put in jail for their faith. So far in our country, that hasn't been the practice. We've been able to freely share our faith. We've been able to freely evangelize those around us. We haven't been arrested for doing that up to this point. So some people say, well, I, I really have trouble identifying with the apostles. I have trouble identifying with what's going on here. I, I like what Eugene Peterson said. He said, enemy assumes various forms. The intense opposition of wicked people, the mild seduction of friends. I think that's an interesting one. The mild seduction of friends. The defiant pride of the rebellious heart. Whether they are inside or out, ferocious or urbane, the person of faith looks to God for deliverance from them. In other words, you don't have to be imprisoned to be persecuted for your faith. It can be a whole lot more subtle than that. Peterson goes on to say, Because I am not hunted down and thrown into prison for my faith, I develop a false sense of security. Save me, God, from such complacency. I know that the enemy has not gone away, even if he is not conspicuous. See, sometimes you don't recognize the enemy because he is not obvious and not conspicuous. But we have an enemy who does not care to have you and me sharing the gospel of life with those around us. Well, they had the 12 apostles arrested, verse 18. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. They were supernaturally released by God and told by the angel to continue the proclamation of the gospel message. Go stand in the temple, verse 20, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. They're supernaturally released from jail. By the way, this is the first of three supernatural releases from jail in the book of Acts. This is the first of three. So if you were having a test, you'd have one answer right already. Right? What were the other two? Who remembers? Peter, Acts chapter 12, when Peter was arrested. That's, uh, I, I told you last week we talked a little about that. That is just the most humorous section of Scripture to me. When the church is praying for Peter's release and he knocks on the door says, I'm Peter, I'm here, please let me in. It said, can't be you because we're praying for you to be released from prison. What's the third? Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas. By the way, I mistakenly said Paul and Barnabas in the first service. Uh, so if you, if you were in the first service or if you know somebody, tell them. <laughs> Say, Joe meant Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Paul and Silas. <laughs> I'm already on holiday. Oh, my brain's gone on holiday. <clears throat> Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. Where? Where was it? Philippi. 
Philippi, and through their experience, the Philippian jailer and his family came to faith. They came to faith. So this is the first of three supernatural releases by God. And they're told by the angel to continue their proclamation. And the angel uses a most unusual description of salvation. Instead of saying, tell the people about salvation, he said, tell the people the full message of this new life. Wow! That's one of the few times in Scripture you see that kind of a description. That's one of the few times you see salvation called this new life. But I think it's a great description, don't you? That's what salvation is, folks. That's what salvation is. When you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are given new life. We're not renovated. We're completely made new. We're completely made new. New life. What a a great thought. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has gone. The new has come. New. The message of this new life. That's what salvation is all about. It's about new life. There are so many people around you and me who are being crushed by the old life. Who are being crushed by the life of sin. who are being crushed by a life of selfishness. And they need new life. And God offers new life. That's what the salvation message is all about. It's about abundant living. That's what Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and have it abundantly. New life. We become new people. We are remade from the inside out. Abundant life. We, are, we pass from death to life. We were living under the condemnation of death. We were living under the sentence of death. And it's been released. Think about that. That's one of the things I was freed from when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Freed from the fear of death. Free from the fear of the death not just of myself, but of the loved ones around me. Because now I knew that they could have eternal life. Because I had been given eternal life. Because I had put my faith in Jesus Christ. Released from the old life. Oh, it didn't mean I became perfect. And I surely am not perfect today. But God no longer condemns me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How many people are being crushed today by condemning themselves? How many people need new life? We have a message of new life, abundant life. We've gone, we've gone from death to life. We have meaningful life. We have spiritual life. Write down John 5.24 for your own study. talks about what we have in Christ. If 
Well, at daybreak, verse 21, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. Now, Dr. Stanley Toussaint points out some irony here, some humor here. The guards were guarding a jail that was empty. The Sanhedrin was gathered to judge prisoners who were gone. I think Luke had a sense of humor here, don't you? <laughs> On arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, no problem there, we got a secure jail. With the guards standing at the door, <laughs> they're right there. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. What? Could you run that by me one more time? On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled. You bet they were. And wondered what would come of this. They were puzzled. They were perplexed. They were at a loss. They couldn't understand what had happened. And more importantly, they were perplexed. They couldn't understand. They were at a loss because they knew what the penalty might be for them. They might have to what? Forfeit their lives because they lost their prisoners. You bet they were perplexed. You bet they were puzzled. In verse 25, then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. That's just why we put them in jail, so they wouldn't do that. They're in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Do you notice twice they say this man? This name. They wouldn't even mention the name of Jesus. They wouldn't even mention the name of Jesus. And the hypocrisy in them that they said, yet you have filled us with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Do you remember what they said just weeks ago in Jerusalem at Jesus' crucifixion? Let his blood be upon us and our children. Who made them guilty? They made themselves guilty. They made themselves guilty. Well, verse 29, Peter and the other apostle, apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. 
We must obey God rather than men. That's a reprise of the principle that we saw in chapter 4 and verse 19. But Peter and John replied there in 4.19, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So they are saying to the authorities of the day, we will not obey your law. Which brings a question up. When should you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, refuse to obey the law? I'm going to share some thoughts in just a second about that. One writer said, The principle is that when a conflict between God and Caesar occurs, God must be obeyed. But, ordinarily, one must give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Another writer said, believers are commanded to obey civil authority except when it comes into conflict with the commandment of God. Now that's important. Did you hear what the writer said? Believers are commanded to obey civil authority except when? When it comes into conflict with God. except when it comes into conflict with God. That's the key to understanding when you don't obey authority. It has to do with conflict with God's word, God's commandments. Not because I don't like the government that's in power. But because it's in conflict with God's word. That's the key. Now, I, I want to share, <laughs> we're going to really rush through this. <laughs> uh, I want to, first of all, let me give you some scripture. Uh, Romans 13, 1-7, Titus 3, 1, both important scriptures. They are central passages that concern uh, obeying government, and that's in Romans chapter 13. I don't have time to read the entire section. I hope you will but I will read a part of it. Romans 13, everyone, Paul said, must submit himself to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. That ought to make you think, right? The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority and is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do, do so will bring judgment on themselves. And then there's a lot more there. I hope that you'll look at it for yourself. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Where we read, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And the third central passage is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. 1 Peter Chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Again, I'll just read a portion of it. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Submit yourselves for 
for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. 1 Peter 2, 13-17. So how, how are we to understand our relationship to government and when it is right to disobey government? I want to share with you some, some thoughts. Somebody who has written and spoken a lot on this issue is uh, Dr. Norman Geisler. Uh, uh, I would bet that only a few of you know that name. Dr. Norman Geisler was a tremendous apologist for the Bible, for God, for the Word of God. And uh, he's in heaven today. He died just a few years ago. But he was a mighty force for God. And I had the privilege of being in a, in a week-long uh, seminar by him, uh, and this was part of the topic. This was part of what we talked about. And I'd like to share some thoughts. I, I realize there are other views on this, but I believe he's got it right. And so I'd like to share that with you. I'd like to share some of what he said. These are his principles. In answering the question, how should a Christian respond to government, and particularly an oppressive government, he says this, what we cannot do is use violence. What we cannot do is use violence. And he has seven thoughts about what we should do. Let me give those to you. Number one, how do we respond to an oppressive government? We pray for it. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. We pray for it. We pray for peace. We pray for justice. We pray for righteousness. We pray for our leaders, national, statewide, local leaders. We pray for the executive branch. We pray for the Supreme Court. We pray for the legislative branch, Congress. We pray for the state and pray for local officials. We pray for the government. Number two, we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. He said this, we will never transform the world by mere legislation. It needs evangelization. We will never change the world by mere legislation. It needs evangelization. Along that same line, Dr. Charles Ryrie said this, is not the Christian to take leadership in trying to correct the ills of society? And will not this responsibility sometimes involve and justify acts of civil disobedience? Certainly the believer has a social responsibility and in a word it is to do good to all men and especially to other believers. But he also has a civic responsibility and that is to be an obedient citizen. If the government under which he lives allows for means of legitimate protest and change, he surely may use them, but to take the law into his own hands finds no support in the scriptures. The only exception seems to be if government forbids his worshiping God. To serve Caesar and even fight for him, the Christian must do. To worship Caesar, he must not do. 
The Christian's primary responsibilities are evangelism and godly living. Through witnessing, he changes men. Through righteous living, he affects society. Through private and public obedience, he honors God. So we preach the gospel. Number three, we submit to the authority of government. Number four, unless it demands we do an evil. Okay, we're going to get to that. Hang on. Unless it demands we do an evil thing. We submit to its authority. Number four, we exert moral influence upon society. We are salt and light, Jesus said. That means we bring preservation and illumination to our society as believers in Jesus Christ. Number five, we should work peacefully and legally to change the government and its laws. And number six, we should disobey commands of government when it commands us to do an evil or when it takes the place of God. When it commands us to do an evil or when it takes the place of God, we should disobey. The examples biblically of that are Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 to 21. We won't have time to turn to these, but the Hebrew midwives you remember they were told by Pharaoh to put to death the Hebrew boys when they were born to drown them. And what did they do? They disobeyed. They disobeyed. Why? Because that was violating God's command, thou shalt not kill. <clears throat> and so they disobeyed the government. Were we commanded in such a way, we would have to disobey. Secondly, Daniel 3 as a second example. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, if you like the Hebrew names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were told to worship the golden image instead of God, and what did they say? No way. And they faced the burning furnace because of it. And they exhibited to us, but if not faith. I don't have time to get into that. Daniel 6. Daniel's the third example. When told he must pray only to Darius, what did he do? He went home, he threw open his windows to Jerusalem, toward Jerusalem, and he prayed to God. He got thrown into the lion's den because of that. We disobey the oppressive commands of government. And we see that in the apostles in Acts 4 and Acts 5. Now, the principle is this. I'll quickly try to bring all this together. When we are commanded to do an evil, we disobey. When we are commanded to do an evil, we disobey. When government permits evil, but not, does not command us to do an evil, we submit to government. There's an important difference, Geisler said, between laws which permit practices which are condemned for Christians and those which command a Christian to do what is contrary to the Word of God. If you and I are commanded to do what is contrary to the Word of God, we must disobey. Dr. Ryrie said, it's not our rights that are at issue or loss of such, 
but it is God's word. You see, the issue is not our rights. The issue is God's word. We disobey when we are told to violate God's word. We cannot, Ryrie said, cannot disobey because we are denied a right, but only because we are commanded to do what is contrary to God's word. So how do you know the difference? How, how do you know legitimate disobedience from illegitimate? Let me give you just real quickly some thoughts from Geisler. Number one, legitimate disobedience is on the basis of religious grounds, not political grounds. Legitimate disobedience is on the basis of religious grounds, not political grounds. Number two, legitimate disobedience is when religion is negated or contradicted, when we're made to do something evil. Illegitimate disobedience is when religion is simply limited. And then finally, legitimate disobedience is when, God, when we are commanded to do an evil against God's word. Illegitimate disobedience is when evil is permitted, but we are not commanded to do it. Geisler's conclusions, and this will be the end this morning. Number one, it's better to do good by dying than to do evil by killing. Number two, it is better to submit to evil authority than to submit to the evil of rejecting authority. Number three, authority is established by God and it will be destroyed by God. And number three, number four, rather, God is sovereign. Trust him. Don't reject him. So we come full circle and we ask a question of each one of us. What stops us? What stops us from sharing our faith? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this time that we have together in your word. These are not easy issues. They are thorny issues. But we pray we will have the courage if government ever orders us to do something against your word and your will to do an evil that we will have the courage to resist and say no and have the wisdom to know the difference. And we pray that that which stops us from sharing our faith with others, that you will help us to be like the early apostles who could not be stopped. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.